The story of where we come from is such an important aspect of our personal sense of self, the forefront of many conversations about national identity, community, and belonging. In a country like the United States, where so many of us are or are descended from immigrants, the answer to this question of heritage can be a complicated one that takes us back generations. And with the proliferation of home genealogy tests like Ancestry DNA and 23andMe, people are learning more about their family histories than was ever thought possible. But what happens when the questions we have about our identities and parentage can't be answered by a simple test? For writer Sophia Shalmiev, the question was never, who is my mother, but rather, where has she gone? Mother Winter, a memoir, traces Shalmiev's journey from early childhood in Leningrad, Russia, to parenthood in Portland, Oregon, as she comes to terms with the ambiguous loss of the most important relationship in her life. Finding inspiration in great feminist thinkers like Audre Lorde, Rita Ackerman, Sappho, Anais Nin, and so many others, Shalmiev masterfully weaves philosophy, literature, and art history with personal memory to craft a reading experience unlike any other. Today on the New Books Network, join us as we sit down with Sophia Shalmiev to learn more about her debut memoir, Mother Winter, available now from Simon & Schuster. Sophia, thanks so much for being here on the New Books Network with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Zoe. Um, So let's jump right into it. Uh, My first question for you about Mother Winter is um, the book revolves around the absence of your mother, Elena. Um, And throughout the book, Elena is often addressed directly as you. Could you talk a little bit about this formal choice? Were you writing the book toward your mother? Yeah, I mean, I was kind of writing the book towards an the absence, because to write it towards my mother would mean that I, I kind of experienced a mother to write towards. Um, and so because the book is centered around inconsolable loss and um, um, the first love object, you know, experiencing the kind of fracture where the loss is actually ambiguous, because if my mother had died, or if um, my parents simply got a divorce, and I got to see her on a consistent basis, or if I even really had a chance to say goodbye, then um, the the fractured, frustrated love, you know, first love object relationship would be completely different. I could actually be addressing a person. I'm addressing like a void because I was taken from her. What my father deemed, you know, his his kind of like best way of protecting me or just surviving, um, uh, fleeing a country under difficult circumstances. But for me as a child, it took me a long time to come to terms with the fact that uh, how he went about it maybe wasn't the the best thing for me as a person who's trying to attach to someone in the world. So the you is I'm speaking to, to myself, to her, you know, to God, to unfairness. Um, and so, but I switch, I, um, I on purpose kind of switch around between it feeling sort of epistolary um, to it feeling sort of like an evocation of her, like trying to sort of pretend that she's there next to me, like some magical thinking. And yeah, just expressing that love and yearning and, and almost like a respect for her in, in Russia, in the Russian language, we have a formal you and a casual you, to or we. 
Um, so in like an elder or an adult is like a vu and a, and your casual friend is like a tu. And it would have been interesting if I had that choice too. So because a vu is more like a stranger. So I'm glad that you bring up your father because the relationship that you describe in the book between you and he, and his name is Gabriel, is a, is a really nuanced one. Um, so he's credited with caring for you after Elena leaves. And at the time, paternal custody of children was unusual in Russia. Um, but he also exhibited some kind of abusive and neglectful parenting behaviors. So how would you characterize your relationship with your father growing up? Um, well, the the literary relationship I have with him was definitely going to be different than the just, you know, day-to-day one I have. Um, I will say that um, I have seldom found literature um, in which a man, a father who is um, abusive to his child gets to continue have a relationship with that child when she grows up and then uh, you know apologizes or makes amends or do you know what I mean like there's some kind of a reparation I don't think we're ever going to like totally be repaired but it was very important to me in this world where men either cannot be held accountable they you know we never put men in jail for rape um domestic violence uh, is still an epidemic of such incredible proportions that we kind of have stopped talking about it at this point. Um, and so for me, having grown up with, with domestic violence, um, my father never sexually abused me. Um, and I actually, it's not a joke. I say, thank God that he, that he wasn't that abusive in that way, because I'm not, uh, I would never have, um, forgiven him for that. I, I, I know that to be true. But um, because I realized ever after having taken some time away from him in my life that um, he comes from a system. He comes from a system of his own childhood neglect, poverty, anti-Semitism, right? Um, just living in a, in a terrorized state in, in Azerbaijan and then coming to that part of Russia where he was persecuted for being brown. He's had so much trauma and shame of his own that as an adult, I actually got to have a little bit of empathy for him and not to think that it's my job to do emotional labor for a man to like grow up and get his stuff together. But just that if he is going to do that, that I am uh, available for it. And, but I, completely, completely have respect for uh, women, children, and survivors who do not want to have a reconciliation with their parent or write them in a nuanced way. But that was my choice. So you were born in Russia in 1978, and you emigrated to the United States when you were 12 years old. So what do you remember about life in Russia during the Cold War? And how did these early experiences shape you as a person? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, I came to America at the time where, um, you know, like the macho United States kind of finally got its way, like thinking about those like kind of binary relationships where there's like an abuser and a victim or, you know, sort of like a perpetrator and a survivor or um, the dominant, you know, versus the submissive. America was in, in our eyes in the Soviet Union under Gorbachev 
was trying to dominate us, was trying to change our country, tell us what to do. I mean, this is nothing new. It's not like we're doing something else in America today. However, um, the the childhood that I had um, in the Soviet Union, in a lot of ways, I think that's why I did more than just survive, was magical, was absolutely magical because we only really... um, we didn't have necessarily the distractions or you know the the opiate of religion and malls um we you know we just had friends come over and maybe play you a song in the kitchen and hang out all day and talk we had the most gorgeous most incredible museums we you know you just i would walk around as a kid as an 8 year old and just look at buildings and absorb that. Um, and people looked out for each other because we had to live in a collectivized way. Our, our apartment was something called a kumunalka. We, there, um, there are two other people in their own rooms that we shared, you know, a kitchen and a bathroom and a household with. And yeah, there's, there's, there's a problem with a lot of that. Um, um, uh, socialism is, uh, the system that I, you know, think we could have strived for under Gorbachev, but we did not get there uh, for millions of reasons. Chernobyl and just the the Communist Party was just becoming too um, unstable, and it's you know it was a lie in of itself. But America certainly didn't help. America had a vested interest in their biggest enemy breaking up, and it was really painful to come here for the worst time in a girl's life. I came here the summer of seventh grade, and just to sort of learn that like. I'm I'm a godless pinko commie from a country that everybody is afraid of and is disgusted by was um, was not helpful to my shame as a motherless girl about to get her period, I have to say. Well, Mother Winter also touches on the experience of identifying as Russian Jewish Orthodox with your father, though your mother was was not Jewish. So what was the experience of practicing Judaism in Russia like at that time? And how do you feel about religion now? Um, I live right around the corner from a um, reform synagogue of Beth Israel here in Northwest Portland. And I was some of that uh, choice about where I live in Portland was partially like, you know, I'm kind of a, well, the urban or I'm into cosmopolitan living more or less. And I didn't want to have like a suburbanized, like here's my backyard and my lawn to take care of experience. And I wanted to be around other Jews, cultural Jews, secular Jews. I, I am not a religious person. Uh, I went to an ultra Orthodox yeshiva um, that was an, an incredibly difficult process, but it gave me a container um, because sometimes when people do have a lot of chaos and neglect to enter any rigid structure, as you know, probably from why people get you know indoctrinated into cults or are easily manipulated or when girls, poor girls are, are stolen away from their fractured families and um, are turned out into prostitution by pimps. It's, it's just another, fa- you're looking for a family. And I was incredibly skeptical of it entering it in junior high school. And even after many beatings and, and, and uh, arguments with my father, I refused to go back to uh, a yeshiva for high school. I just knew that 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 was not for me. Um, and so religion, not so much, but the container of, of tradition, the container of stories. I mean, Judaism, again, has a lot of elements of, of democratic socialism in it, and it's about social justice. I mean, what the Israelis are doing right now to Palestinians is not at all in line with 
the kind of uh, Jewishness that I practice or believe in. It's just a fear-based, you know, kind of mongering, very reactive. But I, my kids and I, we do a lot of the holidays so long as we're doing it with other people. Like if, you know, we can get together with other people and they get to experience Seder, I love that. I want that for them. And I had to formally become Jewish because while I was in yeshiva, I mean, I had no idea that I wasn't in Russia and in the Soviet Union. It's paternal. I was Jewish my whole life, and we could not, we did not. Nobody was going to arrest us for um, for practicing Judaism, but it, they're just it. It wasn't something that was presented or available to us, or I was personally interested in. But every time for the summer, we would go visit my grandma in Baku in Azerbaijan, uh, uh, where she had lived. Yeah, and actually, religion was pretty normal and pretty regular routine. And she seemed kind of casual about it. And sometimes she lights some candles, sometimes not, but there wasn't that much of a community that she entered around it. Um, she was very, very paranoid post Stalin, post purges, post World War II. And I think just suppressed it on her own. So you write how as a young girl, you would tell pretend stories about who your mother was and why you couldn't be together, not only to other children, but also to yourself. So what were some of these stories and why did you feel compelled then to tell them? I know that's such a tricky and interesting question. Why, why, why do we sublimate and how, you know? Um, uh, And just, just thinking about like, you know, the very basic things that Freud had to offer us that, that were okay. He offered us a lot of things that uh, needed to be corrected and we just were either very misogynistic and homophobic or just shots in the dark. But the, um, uh, the stuff that he came up with around our defense structure that we still use and practice and think about today, when you think about sublimation, it's one of the healthiest or kind of the only completely healthy defense structure that we have available to us. You know, that's why there's dark comedy and uh, there, um, there are a lot of people instead of, you know, suiciding or writing poetry. Um, And so I, I think it was kind of involuntary based on the culture that I came from. I went to a boarding school in a town called Pushkin. I mean, I just, I didn't know any better. Um, I just woke up, you know, with poetry and went to bed with it. Um, And so much of it, I don't even really remember, even though we were trained to learn uh, verse by heart and kind of, you know, practice that meter. Um, But I mean, I would just write my own poems then, right? Um, And then I remember at some point, that's how I started processing as a lot of girls before they're shamed and told that diaries are, you know, just these private things that your mom and dad read and then find out everything about you through and then your life is ruined. Like that, that narrative about diaries and my constant defense of a nice nin and um, women who do this stuff that's considered diaristic work, the way that we belittle them or the way that we call that hermetic or too private is basically shameful and non-artistic isn't true. A lot of the stuff that I was writing down in my diary is missing my mother and making up stories about her. I was actually just writing some fiction. I was writing short stories about um, the human condition and the kind of human condition that a child cannot, um, 
verify and check up against other um, realities in her environment because everybody around me seemed to have a mother. And so, and that in the dissociation, I have to say that the one grounding force in my life was I started painting, drawing, and writing. And those are concrete, specific, tactile tasks. And um, the, the way that trauma works is that we are disconnected from our bodies and we float out and we fantasize, but don't do anything about it. And so we erase ourselves and get away from ourselves. Now, the things that you write down are um, your, you know, kind of the, the crumbs back to yourself later. So you left Russia when you were 12, but then you came back for the first time as a young woman in your 20s, um, hoping to find and regain contact with Elena. Can you talk about that experience and what were the primary emotions of that trip? Terror. Like complete, I still like, even, um, I like dread that question. I dreaded writing about it in the book. I, I have, you know, I'm 40 years old. Like I, I've survived a lot, but for whatever reason that return was, um, just something that I'm still having a hard time folding into the narrative of my life. I wasn't prepared for it. I didn't really want to go. And I say that um, in in the book, and I do believe that I that I did actually involuntarily dissociated a lot of my time there. It was just um, I was flooding and the idea to go back. I mean, I always had the fantasy, obviously, to go find her and, and to go back, but, but I'm not really sure that I was ready at 25 years old to go. I definitely did not pick the right person to go. I wanted things to be like, cool, man. I just wanted to be copacetic. I just wanted to be agreeable. I wanted to be like a party. I wanted to please everybody. I wanted for my boyfriend to have a good cool time. Um, and, and I'm not, if, if I would have said, if I had the wherewithal to say all of these things at the time, maybe he would have been like, oh, well, like you don't have to please me. Like, you know, I'm just curious about what the Soviet union is like. And there's a lot of fetishism, I think in general, fetishism and rejection of it's like, it's, it's very surreal around Russia. And so for him to have come and in our relationship, the way that it was, and, and I think I was just starting to learn how to have, you know, healthy sexual relationships and things like that. It was just way too much. I should have went with my best friends who was like, kind of more of a mother figure to me, though, maybe I would have resented her too. There was just no good way to have gone. And also, in 2004, they were just just barely starting to recover from the collapse because the end of the 90s were complete, were bleak. I mean, it was just, you know, grifters and tyranny. And after everything fell apart, I mean, people were just not even letting anybody in their door unless they knew them. And so when I was knocking on doors and saying, oh, hi, I'm here from America. I'm looking for my mother. People would be like, go away. Um, you're here to like scoop up my apartment because that was actually a practice that was going, that was happening. People would knock on your door and say like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm here from the, uh, uh, from the gas company. And then they come in true stories, you know, like rape, you take your shit and then move you out and take over your apartment. I mean, like you don't, you don't have any claim on it. It used to be, um, it used to be from the government. And now did you buy it from the government? Do you have the proper paperwork? Um, so it was just a very interesting, scary time. And yet 
it was already a modernized time. So there were like kind of internet cafes. And then the younger people were already not remembering what had happened. It was such a disconnected, crazy place. So when I got there, I didn't recognize it. I didn't feel like I belonged. The anti-Semitism was still, and probably is to this day, was cruel. Um, so I experienced a lot of uh, cruelty and suspicion and, you know, the, still like the falling out of this system. And so everybody that I talked to would, would not help me. Um, so at this point, if I ever did go back, I would have to most likely have a lot of resources and hire someone who would be my, like, guide, my seeing eye dog. Mother Winter tells not only your story, but also references uh, literary greats' relationships to their mothers, anecdotes from feminist thinkers, um, the work of contemporary women artists. You mentioned Anais Nin and her diary. Um, So how do these voices inform your memoir? And what was your research process like? Yeah, well, in terms of research, I I, I think totally great word for it because there were some things that I would research in a very fluid um, way. The book um, the, the book deals with the occult and happenstance and this idea that we have a lineage that has been stolen from us or that is sort of maybe up in the attic. You know, I think about the White Sargasso Sea and Jean Reese writing a, a book about, you know, the mad woman in the attic and her writing that wrong and um, building on Jane Eyre. And that's sort of like what I wanted to do. I just, the things that I had already read that sustained me, I looked at them again and I said, well, where do they come from or what comes after this? And it was just building scaffolding. Like one thing just left you know, took me to the next. And it didn't feel so much as doing research as I was just, I was tripping up against all of these wires that were helping me. And when I would look at my bruised knee, I'd be like, oh, where's the Band-Aid, right? And it would be Bernadette Mayer. And then I'd read something in Bernadette Mayer and I'd be like, oh, well, let me think about, you know, Hawthorne. Or it just, and it just kept going that way. Um, and so it, it was an obsession and it was something that was beyond me. And I think all of those voices were just, they were, um, you know, the wind behind my back, but, but they were always, they were, they were all there. Like I didn't necessarily specifically pick certain things. And in talking to Eileen Miles about this, um, we had a, um, an in convo, uh, while I was on book tour, they're so gracious and so supportive and just a genius. Um, and they asked me, you know, oh, how long do you think you've been writing Mother Winter? And I looked back at them and I said, how long do you think you were writing Chelsea Girls and just in unison? We said, our whole lives. And so I think that's probably what it is. I mean, I'm, I'm writing a, another book now. We could talk about that later if that's part of the series of questions you want to ask, but it's a very different thing. This is this is a very different uh, process for me, and I do believe I've been writing this book my whole life. So I'm glad that the that the ghosts and the mothers showed up the, the way that they did. So switching gears just a little bit, um, throughout the the you as the speaker on the page is never shy about using language like fucking or cunt in order to describe. Uh, sexuality or the female body. So my question is, what is the inherent power of using words like these? And why is it so important for women to reclaim them? 
Oh my God. I love that question so much. And I cannot believe nobody else has been asking me this. I mean, let's just start off right off the bat. I hope that there are women out there that this helps. I have the words slut and whore in cursive tattooed on my body. Now, as a a Jewish person, that is a sacrilege in many different ways. As a woman, that's like branding as someone who's done sex work. I, I, uh, I was never sexually exploited. I was not trafficked. I used to work in human trafficking. I just want to make the distinction that there are beliefs in, in sexual exploitation and human trafficking work that, that there's no such thing as women choosing sex work. And I am a-okay with that sector, believing that and seeing that. I see their point of view. But um, again, maybe as a way of sublimating on a different level, I chose sex work. And when I did, I wanted to make sure that when I bend over and the man looks at my pussy, that he sees underneath my butt cheek exactly what he already thinks of me, has thought of me, has said to me. And I am actually taking it back and I am actually calling him out. And I will be doing that for the rest of my life. Um, and it was not like a martyrdom at all, but, but, um, language reappropriation is very important. My best friend calls himself a fag. Like back in the 90s, they would call themselves dirt fags. It's just like a certain kind of boy who is not like into like, you know, gym culture or like whatever. Not like there's anything wrong with that, but he just wanted to say like, I'm really punk rock. He's allowed to call himself a fag. Not only is he allowed to call himself a fag, but he does feel empowered calling himself a fag. Why? Humor, taking back a word that used to hurt you and maybe injecting meaning into it or maybe taking it away from the abuser. I was called a whore and a slut and many other words since the moment my body started to change. And probably before that, but I wasn't even necessarily paying attention because I was so checked out. I didn't know, I didn't understand that the men around me were constantly sexualizing me until I got to Italy and was raped and sexualized in all of these ways. And so hell yeah. I think that it's very important for women to use those words. And I think curse words are beautiful and they're words and used, you know, in art, they belong. They really do belong. And um, the last thing I'll say about that and the reason why I also use curse words is um, I often think about what Basquiat did with um, erasure and crossing out language, how much he used language in his visual art. And he would say that if I cross out a thing or kind of erase a thing, but not all the way, out of all the words that are present, your eye is going to go to the negation. Your eye is going to go to the crossed out thing. And we have to think about why that is as crossed out negated people. So the latter chapters of the book focus on your experiences as a mother yourself of two young children, um, and perhaps especially as the mother of a baby girl. So given your experiences with your own mother, what were you expecting motherhood to be like, and in what ways did it surprise you? Yeah, um, well, I have to say that you know, being a mother to a young boy, and I have an essay out at Lit Hub about that, um, my experience, my ongoing experience, mothering a male child, for now male um, child, uh, it, it is incredibly uh, difficult. And I didn't expect it. And he came first. And then my daughter came. I also didn't expect for that as, as she started to develop language skills and um, 
uh, just how she was around the house. I didn't expect for there to be such a difference. I was incredibly shocked and kind of upset because I wanted to raise my children equally and I wanted to see them equally. And I do. And yet I'm also as a writer, um, I'm a recorder and I am recording either, uh, you know, either what like estrogen testosterone do or what socialization does or what the chemicals that are coursing through our bodies do. And I'm, I'm just here to report that, you know, as much as I lean in, in, as much as I lean on my son to be kind, responsible, nonviolent, like be verbally expressive, all the things that that I'm worried are 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 part of what's killing us. Why the patriarchy um, is um, killing us, and yet my daughter is four years younger than him, and she is so so verbally expressive. Her favorite words are you interrupted me and that's not okay. I need space. I mean, does everybody have what they need? She both like has learned to take care of herself and have boundaries and express those boundaries and take care of other people. She's asking me all the time she could set the table. I cannot get my son to put away the the, the laundry. I, it, everything is just like, oh no, we're always dragging feet. He's always trying to like, t- not inappropriately touch her, but he is like bothering her and annoying her, right? Like there's a pattern. This is what we see in society. Like the man that comes into the bar and, and the girl who's sitting there alone and reading and he's like, hey, what do you need, babe? So I'm like watching this. I'm not trying to project that onto my son. I'm, I'm saying that to you only right now. And if he grows up and hears this, I think that's okay. Where if I'm seeing patterns in society and those patterns against my best work, my well-informed self, I repeated in my household as a feminist mother, you bet I'm having a very, very hard time. And I also don't have a mother to call and cry to or ask for advice. And that is where I was brought very, very low in the beginning when it felt like everything was on me. I already had a traumatized body, a traumatized vagina out of which a child came out of tearing it more. And so that, you know, sparked a lot more um, trauma response. And so I've been kind of climbing back from that for a long time, but I knew that I was going to mother in some capacity um, in reality rather than mother in just my body and mother, my dad or mother, the people around me. I just, I, it is what it is. I have a caretaker's um burden and a caretaker's wish fulfillment. It's just, that's how I dealt with my life. That's what was put upon me. And that is kind of like my reaction to things that I'm still managing, which sucks. Well, let's zoom out a little bit and talk about uh, Mother Winter as a whole. Um, So rather than a linear progression through time, unlike most memoirs, your book is actually written and arranged non-chronologically. Some have called it lyrically. can you talk about your decision to structure the book in this way? And how does Mother Winter's form work to mirror its content? Right. Yeah. Well, you know, the I'm reading right now um, The Incest Diary, which is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant book that I cannot relate to more. And it's written in a very similar style. Mine, it's um, the author is anonymous. And I'm really proud of F- FSG you know, very classy. It's, it's a terrible word. Very cool that um, 
that they published a, this kind of book and, and also allowed the author to be anonymous because there's just so much pressure on promotion and to be you. Um, and um, the, the, the author similarly structures their book around hinges. And that's that device is what works. I, you know, if I say, you know, the canary is yellow and yellow is piss and piss stings when it dries on your legs. And my mother tried to be a dry drunk. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that is in itself uh, a form that, that is not actually fractured. Do you know what I mean? Like it's actually the opposite on the page. My paragraphs don't have indents and they're not, um, they're not stacked together, you know, the way a normal narrative is, but they are actually way more hinged than any chronological narrative because they follow their own logic and the book has its own logic and it makes its own meaning. And that is the whole point of art. Um, and an arc if you need one, because there could be an arc within three pages and then it can collapse and restart back up again. And that's an arc. Like I'm tired of the wave up, then down, then a little bit up at the end. And um, unbeknownst to the reader, the book is slightly chronological. It has four parts and you can't see that it's four parts, but it begins in Russia, then it comes to America, and then it goes back to Russia, and then it comes back to America again. And all of those four little containers within themselves have the managed chaos of, of the, the pulleys, the back and forths. So that, that was the idea for that. And my editor, Zach Knoll, um, was the one he want, he actually wanted a four part structure. He wanted that to, to be like part one, Russia, part two, America, part three, back to Russia, part four, back to America. Um, and, but I said, why don't we just make that, um, the invisible thread? So what does the title of Mother Winter mean in relation to the story? Um, so many things that maybe I'm piling on. <laughs> maybe I'm overdoing it with my meaning. Um, to start, um, it's 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 a frozen it's a frozen mother self. It's uh, you know just this idea when something is dead, like like I feel cold on the inside. That my the um, my connection to the first love object is 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 dead like the body in the morgue mother winter uh mother russia the the coldness of um my own kind of like relationship to attachment um the the reference to father frost there not being a mother winter you know in russia we had like a snigurichka and a father frost there was like father winter but there was no mother winter in that tale so the absence and um the idea of the stillness of that that season juxtaposed and it's a lot about juxtaposition juxtaposed to something that's supposed to be very hot and warm and loving and nurturing you know but winter is a time of of rest of mystery nothing is really necessarily growing so we think but it really is it's it's waiting to grow and so that hope that 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 um the saying that our expectations of mothers to be these warm, nurturing creatures is not necessarily going to come to fruition. And then lastly, just this fear that she's somewhere out there, you know, dead, frozen on a bench, dead. So I have one last question for you, Sophia. What is it that you're hoping that readers of Mother Winter will come away from the experience understanding better, maybe especially of this kind of ambiguous loss? Um, that 
that without feminism, without continuously putting our, our, um, I guess, I, I guess I think we have to prioritize feminism above everything. Um, and so if we do not do that, that we are all, we continue to be essentially motherless, that this is not, this is a unique story. This is a new, unique narrative to me that there are seemingly few people that, that have such um, such an intense tear away from their mother and they never see her again. But we are all, as Eileen Miles had kind of recommended to me, that we're all motherless, that we grew up in a society where our our mothers had high, high expectations and high costs and prices, and we're not ever allowed to be complete human beings. Their mothers more so, their mothers more so, and then erasure and erasure and erasure. So how are we not motherless, even if you had a nice lady at home feeding you dinner and waiting for you to come home from school. We are all motherless, and it is high time that we invest in free daycare, invest in um, better public schools, and invest in the narrative supporting the caregiver more than anything. And then we can, you know, kind of have a society because right now we don't. Well, beautiful. Thank you so much for your time. Oh my God. Thank you so much, Zoe. This was awesome. My name is Zoe Bossier, and you've been listening to an interview with author Sophia Shalmiev on New Books in Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for listening.